It will become one. No, no, I'm not going to get one to come out now. Good evening, everybody. Um, good to see you. I can't see you, but I'm assuming maybe you can see me. There's something weird going on here, which no one's going to be able to help me. But, um, okay. Martha said there's always something weird going on here. So, I like here. <laughs> We're going to give everybody a couple minutes to get on. Hope you're having a great week. Here we are in my living room again, in your living room again. Got to quit meeting this way. <laughs> what? Everyone needs to have an opportunity to do this sometime in your house with your wife and then go back and realize, you know, a lot of people are seeing this and, uh, you know, it's very humbling, very, very humbling. Alderman family, they all said good evening. Good evening, Alderman. Victoria Kemp said good evening. And Victoria. And something's going on. My my window is like this big. So the good news is I can't, I can't see me, let alone see you. So. Hello, Jesse. Hello, Mary. Oh, you early uh early birds. Um yeah. It's kind of nice in some ways. I guess the nice thing about this is you can leave for church at uh, 6.59 and be there right on time. So that's a good thing. 7 o'clock, I'm going to start on time. And um, while some more people are jumping on, I will remind you of um, my challenge this uh, evening. I put it on my announcement. I asked you to think about what your family motto might be. I don't know if you remember that commercial that was on a year or two ago. I think it was a Hyundai commercial, if I'm not mistaken. But the tagline was, don't tell mom. Remember that? There's a guy in the, in the car and he's got his kids with him and he takes them to a really scary drive-in and they're petrified. He's like, don't tell mom. And they go and he takes his kid down this uh, really steep ski slope and he says, don't tell mom. And they TP a neighbor's yard, don't tell mom. And they burn down the tent. And after all these disasters, he's like, don't tell mom. And then the very end, the mom comes parachuting in with her son and said, don't tell dad. But, uh, you know, for that family, that was their motto, I guess. So I'm asking you, what was your family motto? Maybe your family motto growing up or maybe your family motto now. And this came from actually just an icebreaker. We're just we're just uh, wasting a little time, uh, not wasting, but uh, waiting for more people to jump on. Gonna try to tie it in later. But my daughter Maggie actually brought this up the last time she was home, and I guess it's a thing. Apparently, it's a thing to have a family motto. I never knew that before, but she was talking about it, and then I went and actually. Uh, looked online, and there's all kind of life coaches and books and all kind of things about the need for having a family motto, something, a statement or or some um, some something to live by. Um, and I've never thought of that. And so she got talking to me about a, a family motto. 
Um, for instance, you know, if it was easy, everyone would do it. You know, maybe that's a family motto. Um, um, so I got to thinking about my family. Yeah. I, I, um, and by the way, I want you to share your family motto in the comments. Either when you, for me, when you're a kid uh, or your family now, ask your kids, ask your spouse. There's a real good chance what they say will not be what you hoped they would say. <laughs> but uh, when I was young, growing up, I think we had two. And I don't know if my siblings would agree with this or not, but this is how I remember it. My mother's, I think, would have certainly been, this is a day the Lord has made. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. And I always hated to hear her say that because she always said it to me when I was upset about something. When I was complaining about something, her response was always, this is a day the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I know. Don't want to hear that. For my dad, and I think my dad's watching right now, um, but he had two. And I didn't like either one of them. The first was, it'll all show for itself. And I never even knew exactly what that meant, but I'd always, he'd, he'd give me some job or tell me to, it'll all show for itself. Okay. And the other one that I even liked less was just do the best you can with what you have. He would always tell me that. And I hated to hear it. Just do the best you can with what you have. You know, living on a farm, he'd give me some weird, wild job to do. And it's like, this is going to take me like six months. Well, just do the best you can with what you have. I need the, just do the best you can with what you have. And then he'd leave, and I never really did the best I could with what I had. But, uh, but of course, when I got a little bit older, when I had kids, I told my boys, just do the best you can with what you have. So, yeah. But anyhow, getting back to it, when Maggie was here, she started talking about our family motto. And I said, did, did we have a family motto when you were growing up? Oh, we sure did, Dad. You know what it was. And I'm like, no, I, I don't know what our family motto would have been, yes, you do, guess, which me and Maggie are always doing is guess. So, you know, I'm guessing things like, well, it probably was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. No, it wasn't that. Well, it should have been. Um, maybe, um, as for me and my household, well, I'll serve the Lord. No, Dad, it wasn't that. You know what it was. I'm like, I don't know what it was. She said, no, here's our family motto. It's no big deal. And I'm like, what? That is our family motto. Every time something came up, you and mom were like, it's no big deal. That is the creed that we lived by. It's no big, every time I complained, it's no big deal. Everything to you was no big deal. And I'm like, I don't think so. No, see, I don't think that's, I don't think that's right. Well, does it bother you? No, it's no big deal. <laughs> Maybe she was right. Um, but yeah, what was your family motto growing up? And like I said, if you got kids, ask them because it's probably they'll have a different answer than, than you might have. Anybody's post a family motto yet? I can't Martha? keep up again. Can't keep up. My my secretary slash director slash producer. That doesn't know uh, shorthand. That doesn't know shorthand. Well, well give people me. People can read it, but I'll give you some. Give me a couple. Lay them uh, on me. Jimmy and Renee DeBose. Jimmy DeBose, don't quit. Don't quit. Uh, it's a little better than other deal. I might be dumb, but I ain't stupid. <laughs> uh, Two minutes for rebuttal. Renell, get it done. Get her done. Or get it done, probably. Renell wouldn't say get her done. That's it. 
uh, Melody Ryman uh, Mark is uh, Not Again. Not Again by Melody. Mike Donahue, Flirting with Disaster. Flirting with Disaster. Mike, Living on the Edge. The Aldermans, Good Enough is Not Enough. Ooh, the Aldermans. And my favorite so Good far, Enough is Not Enough. Ooh, word to live by. My favorite so far is from the Fannies. Shut off the TV and go outside. <laughs> Mike and Karen Fanning, shut off the TV and go outside. Your, your kids might actually agree with that one. Renee, okay. Here's Renee. Be the best. Renee is be the best. Fanny Hall, be thankful for whatever we have. Be thankful for what we have. Gwen Bethea, because I said so. <laughs> Gwen, because I said so. We're and on the same page, Gwen. Dave and Teresa Vaughn, same as Maggie. If you don't finish your dinner, no dessert. Don't finish your dinner, no dessert. Oh, and the, I know the, I missed some. The so legacy we leave, it, uh, it is humbling and sobering and usually embarrassing. But, um, yeah, uh, be thinking about that through the, through the night. If you think of a... If, Mike, Mikey put, don't make me take my shoe off. <laughs> Mike Manley, don't make me take my shoe off. I don't even know what that... I, okay, we, it's probably a good place to transition on that one. Um, I'm going to come oh, back to really this. Good job. Good job, everybody. Good job. I thought that was somebody saying yeah. good job. Good job, everybody. Okay. Um, and if I didn't read yours, no big deal. <laughs> if Martha didn't read yours, no big deal. Um, we have been spending our Wednesday nights talking about what Jesus talked about. And we've been looking and listening to some of the teachings of Jesus. We looked at miracles of Jesus. We spent the last couple of weeks talking about some teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm actually going to jump out of the Sermon on the Mount tonight. I might jump back in in a week or two. I don't know. Uh, but I want to jump out of the Sermon on the Mount. And, and I want to go back to a time, if you remember in my announcement, I want to go back and kind of look in on angry Jesus. I'm going to go back and think about, talk about a time when Jesus was angry. You know, the Old Testament talks a lot about God getting angry, the wrath of God, and God was angry and displeased and all those things. The New Testament doesn't talk as much about Jesus being angry, but it certainly tells us sometimes when Jesus was angry. And if I were to ask you to name a time when Jesus was angry, off the top of your head, I suspect that probably 95% of us would say when he cleared the temple. And that's certainly true. He was angry. It happened twice, by the way. He did it twice. Um, and in both, both instances, he was angry about what people were doing uh, there in the temple. Uh, but was there any other... We're not talking about that tonight, by the way. Was there any other times that you can think of in Scripture where Jesus was angry? You know, there, it, it seems like maybe he gets angry at a fig tree once in Matthew 21, I think it is. Uh, because it wasn't bearing fruit. Actually, I think there was something else going on there. Any other times you can think of when Jesus got angry? If you think about it, there's several times when he gets angry with religious people. Several times when he gets angry with people who are hypocrites. You know, we get angry all the time, right? And we usually get angry because we don't get our way. Yeah. Remember that thing you were so angry about a month ago? Remember that? No, you don't remember that. 
And the reason you don't remember what it was is because we get angry so often and we get angry about such silly things. But usually it's because we don't get our way. I remember when I used to get angry with my kids, it was because they weren't doing what I wanted them to do. I wasn't getting my way. Usually when someone gets in the way of us getting our way, you better get out of the way because I'm going to get angry. um, Jesus did not get angry for the same reasons that we get angry, by the way. Also, he didn't sin in his anger, Hebrews chapter 4. We're commanded not to sin in our anger, Ephesians chapter 4. But I do want to look tonight at an instance when Jesus got angry, and it was actually a miracle that Jesus performs. Jesus performs a miracle, and he performs it while he is angry, which seems so off to us, right? When you think about Jesus performing a miracle, when you think about Jesus healing someone, helping someone, you think about all the times that Jesus is so compassionate and so loving and so sympathetic. We're actually going to look at uh, a time tonight where Jesus heals someone and he is angry while he is healing this person. It's in Mark chapter 3. Go ahead and get your Bible. We're just going to walk through it. We're going we're to kind of go verse by verse a little bit, and it'll really be helpful if you have your Bible or open up your app or whatever you use. And we're going to stay right in Mark chapter 3 tonight. It's a really short story, and it is a very short miracle, but there's a lot going on, and there's a lot that, uh, that we can learn from taking a look at a miracle that we don't really spend a lot of time talking about, I don't think. I've never taught a class on it, I don't think. I've never really focused on it, but uh, but how do you not focus on a miracle, right? Uh, Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. So Jesus finds himself in the synagogue. There in the synagogue is a man with uh, a deformed hand. Uh, we would probably think of as, as a um, an atrophied hand. And maybe it was because of a accident. I don't know. Maybe the bones weren't set correctly. It's hard to say. But for whatever reason, this man had a hand that was worthless, had a hand that he couldn't use. It would have been something that would have been very visible. Everybody would have known it. I would assume that it would be something that would be a little bit embarrassing. Human nature hasn't really changed very much in 2,000 years. And I suspect that this was something that was embarrassing to the man. Uh, Jesus is in the synagogue. It takes place in a synagogue. He is there probably to teach. We're going to find out that his reputation has preceded him. People there know who Jesus of Nazareth is, um, and they know what he's been up to. We also are going to find out that what takes place here happens on the Sabbath, which is going to play into the narrative in a major way. But Jesus is in a synagogue, and somehow he notices this man with the shriveled hand. And I don't know how he notices this man. I don't know if the man is there because he knows Jesus is going to be there. Again, we we already know that Jesus has been healing, and we know there are people here that are sort of expecting that Jesus might heal there in the synagogue. Um, I do know this. If I were a man that needed to be healed of something and... I heard that the miracle man was in town. I would probably put myself in the same place that he was. Um, 
I would somehow try to communicate to Jesus, would you help me? Verse 2, Mark chapter 3, verse 2. Some of them, we're going to come back to them in just a minute. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Now, we just talked about this on Sunday, didn't we? Now, my sermon on Sunday was about Jesus healing the blind man, and he healed him on the Sabbath. So here is a very similar situation going on. Jesus is in the presence of someone who needs him. He's in the presence of someone who needs healed, but it's the Sabbath. How unfortunate for this man. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Okay, right off the bat here, we are introduced to a version of religion that values God, but it doesn't value the things and the people that God values. Are you with me here? We're, we're introduced to a religion that is trying to honor God, but they're not honoring the very people that God honors. Uh, a group of religious people who are claiming to love God, but they are showing no love toward the people that God loves. Which, by the way, is actually impossible to do. Um, but actually, I think all of us have probably done the same thing um, to try really hard to focus on God and at the same time ignoring the things that God focuses on. But more on that in a minute. Back to the story. Verse 3. Mark chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Which is probably the very last thing this man wanted Jesus to say to him. I mean, Jesus is standing. Everyone else is sitting. He sees the guy with the withered hand, and he says, Stand up in front of everyone. And this guy is like, you know, I was kind of hoping that it's going to be me and you, Jesus. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad you've noticed me. But maybe we could meet outside in the parking lot, you know, after services. Maybe we could keep this a little bit less public. But Jesus says, stand up. And so here's Jesus standing. Here's this man standing. And I hope I'm still on. Sorry we're having trouble playing this video. I want to keep going, assuming that I'm still on. Let me know if I'm still on. So Jesus is standing up, the guy's standing up, and then Jesus turns his attention to them. He's going to talk to them. Verse 4, Jesus asked them, those who are so devoted to God, them who are so devoted to honoring God but didn't really care for the people that, that God was devoted to. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? Okay, he's got a question for them. And he's going to make it really easy. He's going to ask him a multiple choice question. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? And again, remember, they had this really tightly wound interpretation of what the Sabbath was, what you could do on the Sabbath, and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath. God gave some rules according, regarding the Sabbath, and then they just started piling on more and more rules. You, know, you couldn't work on the Sabbath. And they were the ones who defined what constituted work. And basically they defined it that, that work was pretty much what other people did that they didn't do. You know, other people broke the Sabbath, but, but they didn't. 
and, and really, when you think about it, that's it's kind of the way most religion works, right? You, know, you think about how upset you get and how judgmental we get about someone else's sin. But when it's our sin, I'm just having a bad day. I just had a, a, a temporary lapse. You know, I, I had a bad day. He's a bad person. You know, everybody's sin is always worse than, than my sin. So Jesus says, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? To do good or do evil? Now, everybody knows the answer to this question. This is an easy question. Well, it's not lawful to do evil on the Sabbath. It's not lawful to do evil any time. Now, obviously, everybody here knows the answer to this question. The answer is to do good. But these are really smart religious people. And these smart religious people are starting to get a feeling that Jesus is trying to trick them. And Jesus is trying to trap them. And usually it is the smart religious people who are trying to trick and to trap Jesus. But these guys have sense that Jesus is trying to set them up. And, and they're really not too far from the truth. Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? Easy question. A child can answer that to save a life or to kill? Okay, there's actually some pretty, pretty much big drama going on right here. Because all of these men who would be listening to Jesus in the synagogue, they all would have at one time or another been guilty of violating the Sabbath as they see it. They all would have been guilty of, of, of violating the Sabbath and the rules that they had imposed. I mean, if if their donkey had got into a ditch or if their oxen had, had uh, gotten sick or you know, injured, they, they would have worked to take care of them, let alone their children or their wives. Well, surely I can, I can save my child or, or even my donkey. Is it okay to do good on the Sabbath? Well, I know it's not okay to do evil on the Sabbath. Is it okay to save a life on the Sabbath? Well, I know it's not evil, or it's not uh, okay to kill someone on the Sabbath. So here's the real question. Here's where we've kind of been leading up to, and I think here's where Jesus has been leading up to. Is the law of God for the benefit of God, or is it for the benefit of the people made in the image of God? Is the law of God for the benefit of God, or is it for the benefit of the people? Um, is the law of God for God's benefit? You say, God, hey, I keep the Sabbath. Now, these, these, these guys living under the old law. Uh, we keep the Sabbath. And you should be so proud of us. I mean, we keep it really, really well. And we know that you're happy with us because we've done such a good job of keeping the Sabbath. Is, is God better off because they've done such a good job of keeping the Sabbath or is the Sabbath for the people that God loves? Is the law of God for God? Is it, or is it for the law of God for God's people? And actually, Jesus is going to answer this question. It's not that hard a question. In fact, he answers this question immediately before this miracle happens. Uh, back up just a couple verses, the very end of Mark chapter 2. Right before this story, Mark chapter 2, verse 27. Then he said to them, 
This is Jesus talking. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. God didn't create the Sabbath for himself. And God didn't create people for the sake of the Sabbath. God created the Sabbath for the sake of the people. It'd be kind of like uh, parents getting together and say, you know, we need to have kids so someone's here to pick up the toys. No, that didn't make any sense. That's not how it works. Um, God didn't create people just so there'd be someone there to keep the Sabbath. So the question is, is the law of God for the benefit of God or is the law of God for the benefit of people, the ones that God loves? And again, everybody knew the answer to this question. Everybody understood where Jesus was sort of taking this conversation, but they just couldn't let Jesus win. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save a life or to kill? And then look at this. This, this is great. But they remained silent. They remained silent. Come on. You're the experts. You're the keepers of the law. You're the defenders of the Sabbath. Certainly you know the answer to this question. Certainly you have something to say. But they remain silent. Silent. Let me step sideways for just a second and make a <laughs> statement. And I think I think this story in this passage, um, I think I think I can make this statement with quite a bit of uh, confidence. And I think this, this story speaks to it. When our application of Scripture conflicts with the intent of the Spirit behind the Scripture, when I say Spirit, I'm talking capital S. When our application of Scripture conflicts with the intent of the Spirit behind the Scripture, our application is wrong. When we start applying Scripture in a way that conflicts with the intention of Scripture, obviously, We've missed, the, we've missed the story. Um, you know, in this uh, miracle in, in Mark chapter 3, you've got a group of people who I'm sure saw themselves as really good religious people trying very hard to be really good religious people. But they're confused about why God instituted the Sabbath in the first place. They conclude that, that God came up with these laws on the Sabbath so that we would have another layer of rules that we could keep and we could prove to him just how much we love him. That we can have a, another layer of rules. In fact, we'll add some on ourselves, but we'll be able to keep all these rules and we'll be able to do it so well. And we'll be so right in our religion that God's going to be really happy with us. And the whole idea of the Sabbath, the rules of the Sabbath, is so that we can prove how good we are and that God will be happy and God will love us. And they turn their backs on the very people who needed help, who needed healing on the Sabbath. They turn their back on the very people that God would never turn his back on. Which leads us a little bit deeper into the story. Now, how, do, how does Jesus react? How does Jesus respond when when people try to use the rules of God to ignore or mistreat the people that are made in the image of God. 
Well, verse 5. He looked around at them, them being the, the people in the audience. He looked around at them in anger. I told you we were going to get to angry Jesus. Jesus is angry. He looked around at them in anger. Actually, the word used here is the same word that sometimes translated wrath. Talk about the wrath of God. This is the wrath of Jesus. He looked around at them in anger. I put on my um, on my uh, flyer um, uh, on the announcement. What? Why is Jesus so mad? What makes Jesus mad? What is it that makes Jesus mad? Think, well, what makes Jesus mad? Um, sin. No, sin makes Jesus mad. I don't know about that. Sin breaks his heart, for sure. He hates sin. But Jesus was around a lot of sinners that he didn't get mad at. And Jesus was exposed to a lot of sin. And he showed so many times compassion and love and sympathy. Um, you know what makes Jesus mad? And if I had to guess, I would say it's the same thing that makes God mad. Because you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. I, I think Jesus actually tells us in the very next statement. I think Mark 3 tells us what makes Jesus mad. He looked at them in anger and deeply distressed, deeply distressed. He's angry and he is distressed at their stubborn hearts. Jesus was angry. He was distressed, deeply distressed because of their stubborn hearts. Because they knew what they, they knew the answer to Jesus's question, they just wouldn't say it. They knew what they needed to do, they just wouldn't do it. They knew that Jesus was right, but they just couldn't let him win. It was their stubborn hearts, their unwillingness to acknowledge what they already knew. And it distressed Jesus. Now, understand, we're almost done with this passage. We're almost done with the story. The miracle hadn't happened yet. He hadn't even healed this guy yet. The guy's standing up. Jesus is standing up. Jesus turns and, and talks to, you know, them uh, in the crowd. But he's still standing here with a withered hand. Um, and then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And again, I wonder about this guy. Stretch out your hand. My hand that, that I can't use. My hand that is shriveled. My hand that has been an embarrassment to me for a long time. My hand is the reason that I can't work. My hand is the reason that life has not turned out like I want it to. You know, you want me to stretch out my hand. And for some reason... And I think I know why. But for some reason, this man exposes himself in, in a very real way to Jesus. He, he's willing to be very transparent with Jesus, very vulnerable around Jesus. Jesus said, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And his hand was completely restored. So he stretches out his hand. I can't even see what I'm doing. This is weird. I, I can't even see me on the screen, but he stretches out his hand and it's completely restored. And you would 
think that there would be some celebration, right? You would think that people would be excited and joyful. You would think there would be some clapping and some, you know, at least a little golf clap, like, ooh, nicely done. Mm-hmm, yes. You would think someone would be happy about this. But look at verse 6. Then, right then, right, right next, the very next thing. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. People that saw this, they go out and say, we've got to kill this guy. He just healed a man. He just performed a miracle. But he did it on the Sabbath. He's a threat to religion as we know it. We got to kill this guy. Now, I want you to think about something for just a second. Give me, give me five more minutes. You know, quit watching Wheel of Fortune. Or 731, Jeopardy. Okay. Uh, quit shopping online. Whatever. Reruns. Reruns, yeah. Um, but when you hear a story like this, when you read a story like this, aren't you pretty much on Jesus' side? Aren't you really pulling for Jesus? Now, if, um, if we were in the crowd there, wouldn't we be going, ooh, good. You know, Jesus is the hero. Way to go, Jesus. Yay, Jesus. Boo, religious leaders. Yeah, we'd all be on Jesus' side. But what Jesus is introducing, and his whole ministry does it, He's introducing a a version of religion that's really uncomfortable. You know, these these people that he's listening, they're listening to Jesus, they're they're, they're pretty comfortable in their religion. But Jesus is introducing something that's very uncomfortable. And one of the reasons why it's so uncomfortable is they were completely, had lost control. I mean, they they had no control over this thing, the way Jesus was presenting it. And I think there's something in that that still connects with us. I think there's something in us, and you might disagree because I might be wrong, but I think there's something in us that we sort of conclude, okay, I want to treat people however I want to treat them. And then I'm going to go and ask God for forgiveness. And then I'm going to go back and pretty much treat people the way I want to treat them. Now, I want to do what I want to do. I want to live like I want to live. I'll go to church. I'll look good and I'll sound good. I'll ask God for forgiveness. But I still want to go back and live pretty much like I want to live. Now, I'm not planning. I'm not looking toward any kind of transformation. Now, that's, that's not what I'm looking for. Um, we want a faith that makes us accountable to God, but not accountable to the people God loves. And I hope you're tracking with me on that. I hope you're sort of thinking this through. I think a lot of people look for a, a faith that makes us accountable to God, but not accountable to the people that God loves. You know, just, just tell me what to do. Just give me the five steps. Give me the five acts. Give me the seven reasons. Just, just let me work the system. Let me do what has to be done. I don't want you messing with my heart. I don't want you messing with my attitude. I don't want to change my life. I just want to, I just want to do it right. It's kind of thinking that made Jesus angry. When we care so much about God to the exclusion of ignoring the people that God cares about, Jesus gets angry. 
And Jesus would be quick to remind us, you're on the wrong side of God, if you think that's the way it works. You know, Jesus did not get angry when he didn't get his way. He got angry when religion got in the way of what God wanted. Now, before you start sending me texts and emails, understand I'm a big fan of religion. <laughs> I'm not knocking religion. I'm a preacher. Big fan of religion. But I'm not a fan of religion that claims to value God and not value the people that God loves. And I'm not a fan of religion that claims to honor God while dishonoring the very people that God loves. And I'm not a fan of religion that claims to, to love God and not love the people who are made in the image of God. Now, that's when we discover angry Jesus. So let me close with this analogy. I'm not even sure it's an analogy. It's probably more of a truth. Um, but think about this. And if you're, you're a parent or a grandparent, if you uh, have kids or have parents, <laughs> if you have a boyfriend, a girlfriend, you can be able to relate to this. You can tell everyone you know how close me and you are. You know, Tim is a great guy. You know, we're really great friends. I think a lot of Tim. He thinks a lot of me. Uh, we text, we talk, we email. I sit on the front row, you know, during sermons. Uh, we are really close. We are super close. And, and you can tell everybody that. You can tell me that. But I'm, I'm going to tell you this. If you're telling people just how close me and you are, but you mistreat my wife, that relationship is going to suffer. <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now. The relationship is going to suffer. If you're telling everybody else how close me and you are, but, but you're mistreating, you're hurting my kids, you are going to see angry Tim. Not no big deal, Tim. You're going to see angry Tim. Because you can't claim to value me and not value the people that I value. And you can't claim to love me and not love the people I love. And we all get that. We all understand that, don't we? You know, the same is true with, with our Heavenly Father. We can't claim that we love God and then mistreat the people that God loves. And Jesus taught that, and he modeled it, and he explained it. He said, treat other people the way you want other people to treat you. And then he says, uh, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. I'm setting the bar way up here. As I have loved you, I want you to love each other. Lots more we could talk about uh, in, this, uh, in this pretty short miracle and healing, but that's, that's probably a good place to wrap it up for tonight. Uh, let's have a prayer, and then I've got some announcements that I need to share with you. Let's pray. Father, again, we are so thankful that you are so patient with us. And we read stories like this, and it's so easy to think, boy, they just didn't get it. And then we have to ask ourselves how well we're getting it. So would you help us to have eyes and hearts that see people the way you see people? And would you help us to realize that uh, when we serve others, we serve you. And to show our love to you, we need to show our love to others that we need to love as Christ loved us, and that is completely and it is sacrificially. So help us to be more like Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Uh, a couple announcements. And again, I'm going to apologize. I have usually at least I can see myself when I'm talking to you. 
I've, I've been staring at the black screen all night, so I, I'm hoping Martha would have said something. If I, okay. Um, did you say you had something that... Well, just because this made me laugh out loud, Angie Thomas Manley wrote the youth group motto. <laughs> I'm not sure I want to hear this. Angie Thomas Manley sharing the youth group motto. Can you get first, first, do you agree with it? The old youth group model, the youth group back from like the 50s. Um, when, you you were, know, when you were there. When I was there. Um, so, be firm, fly low, and stay cool. Yep. I don't, no, I don't know. It starts with don't. Don't. Drink. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> don't, say don't drink, don't smoke. <laughs> Don't drink, don't smoke, don't park and pet. Is that it? I laughed out loud when I read it. No, I've got to explain that. The only reason I said that was when I was a kid in my little, my little congregation in Indiana, Pennsylvania, we had this lady who worked with the, maybe I was junior high. Yeah, she was wonderful. And junior, I don't know how old I was, but that was like her reoccurring theme. That was her reoccurring um don't drink, don't smoke, don't park and pet. And I'm like 12 years old. And I'm like, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. So, yeah. And, yeah, and all you parents know I did not. We so. loved your kids. We still do. Just pass them on. Uh, Jan Sweeney is home for two weeks. Nice. Um, uh, she would appreciate phone calls, messages. Jan had a procedure on uh, her lower back, uh, an outpatient thing that's been uh, giving her a lot of trouble. She's home and... Uh, cards and calls and checking up on Jan would go a long way. Um, I know that um, Roxanne, you saw probably on uh, Vital Concern that Roxanne lost her 29-year-old niece uh, to the COVID virus uh, this past week. And we want to keep Roxanne and, and that family in our prayers. She's with the family right now. I don't have an update on David Harkins. I know the situation is still serious and David certainly uh, needs our prayers as well. Um, uh, hand me my phone once. I've got a couple of announcements that you need to hear. Um, one, the um, drive-in movie for the youth group and Faith Lane kids and their families uh, is on for this weekend. It is, I have the information right here. It is August the 8th from 8 to 10 p.m., it's at the church building. Uh, it's a, like an old time drive-in. You're gonna stay safe in your car, gonna socially distance with snacks. And Angie's gonna have the uh, Faith Lane home kits for you to pick up. Robbie's got this really cool screen set up. He's got it where you can tune in on your car radio to hear the audio and sounds like a lot of fun. Your kids, I bet, have never been to a drive-in movie and here's their chance this uh, Saturday eight to 10. And then also I want to mention that um, Robbie and uh, uh, Robbie and Angie are planning a back to school drive kind of thing uh, for, for the community, but they are especially part partnering with the school that uh, uh, Rennell uh, Mithurin uh, principals at. And so they're partnering with that school and Rennell is going to get them a list of some school supplies that his kids are going to be needing. 
and um, let me my phone so I can get. Oh, you did. Uh, let me get you the a little bit of inf information on that. Um, we need to get those school supplies purchased before August the fifteenth. Uh, and this, this is gonna be kind of fun. This is gonna be cool. On August the fifteenth, we're gonna ask you to bring your school supplies, and it's gonna be a specific list. Don't go buy it just yet. I know that um, Kleenexes, Ticonderoga pencils, and disinfectant wipes are on that list. But wait till you get some information on the rest of the list. But then on August 15th, which is just 10 days away, whatever, um, there's going to be uh, the, the charity drive drop-off. And you can go to the building, drop off your school supplies, but you can have some activities planned. It's for the whole church, it's not just for the youth group of Faithland, it's for the whole church. Uh, purchase some school supplies, bring it to the building on August 15th. Ice cream, activities, uh, Air 9 Square, a prayer walk, just a lot of fun things that can be done socially distanced, but at least we can see each other and spend some time together. So that's August 15th, 4 to 6 p.m. That is for the whole church, um, for those school supplies, uh, which will, will bless a lot of kids, and um, yeah, and that looks, sounds like a fun afternoon. Anything else that I've missed? Okay. Thank you for being with us. We're still meeting virtually this Sunday, and um, I'll go ahead and say it. This would be a really good week to try out a life group. You don't even have to commit to one. Just try it out. Call uh, the office. You can get in touch with me, Jim Ingram. Uh, you can go on the website and see where they are and who's hosting them. You can get in touch with the leaders, whatever. Just, you know, I want to try out one. One week. Just try it for one week and see what you think. A lot of groups meeting, and it's really an encouraging thing. And, and you'll be blessed, and you'll be a blessing to others as well. So have a, a wonderful rest of the week, and we'll see you on Sunday.